guys. We can we can have Hillsong in the background. That would make it. That would maybe keep me awake a little bit more. Mm. Come on. <laughs> oh, it's so great to be back. I'm really looking forward to preaching this text. If I was in the congregation, I probably wouldn't stay awake. So hopefully, I don't fall asleep while up here. Um, if I do, Noah, you can take over. Are you sure about that? Yeah, I am. I think you'll do a great job. Come on, Noah. All righty, Ephesians chapter 2. So we are back into our series. I hope you enjoyed Mr. Jones, Mr. Glenn preaching last week on the hope that we have, um, the, the, the wedding feast to come. Um, and so I hope that served you really well. Today we're back into Ephesians and we're now, we made it out of chapter 1, we're in chapter 2, uh, but the two chapters are really connected. Um, if you remember the last sermon I preached, it was on that passage that Henry read out during his prayer that God wanted the Ephesian Christians to know something, to know the hope to which they were called, the, that they were God's inheritance, and the power which God has worked for them. And then he goes on, Paul goes on to explain that power, the power that raised Christ from the dead, the power that now has seated him in the heavenly places. And now we get to chapter 2, and Paul is still explaining what that power looks like. But now it's not just power in Christ, it's the power of God in us. He turns from painting the picture of who Jesus is, and now he starts to move towards us and say, this is who you are. And so this sermon um, tonight, today, tonight, what, well, it's tonight in Orlando, so um, to, today is uh, called Portraits of Grace, Portraits of Grace, of grace. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. We're going to see God's power in us, in our stories. I'm going to read it and then we'll get in. And you, it's chapter 2 verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word. In Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. How would you paint a portrait of your life? 
If you were to try and describe to someone or paint a picture of who you are and all you've accomplished and all you've gotten done so far in life, how would you paint that picture? How would you tell that story? One such story of uh, someone I think will help us to understand this passage really well is actually the story of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, I've just gotten back from America, the home of the free and the land of the brave, uh, the place of the American dream. Um, And I can tell you that Orlando, the American dream, has failed. Uh, (laughs) Orlando is not the place of the American dream. But there is this pervasive idea in America that you can be whoever you want to be, achieve whatever you want to achieve. It's the land of opportunity. The land of freedom. If you work hard enough, if you try hard enough, if you get a lucky break, you can be a quadruple billionaire. That's the kind of spirit in the land. Rich and poor, believe it. The land of freedom, the land of opportunity. The land of the self-made man, the self-made woman. The rags to riches story populate their biography lists and their news articles. And it's not so different here in Australia. We still have our own little versions of that. But Arnold Schwarzenegger is a great picture of the self-made man, the American dream. He was born in Austria. Uh, His father was an alcoholic and was a one-time member of the Nazi party. Arnie, as a young guy, eight, nine, ten-year-old boy, loved body you know, weightlifting and things like that. But his dad used to abuse him and laugh at him and put him down. And so he, you know, to kind of, fix himself up and, you know, get through that time. He would watch movies. He he used to watch the old Hercules shows with all the ripped guys um, watching it. And he used to be like, I want to be like that one day. And so he became fascinated with America. And as soon as he could, he flew out of Austria and landed in America and started trying to find people that were bodybuilders and weightlifters so that he could become one of them. He started with nothing and gradually, bit by bit, got noticed by people. Eventually, he found his way into one of the most famous um, bodybuilding celebrities in that area and grew, literally, and grew and grew and grew to become one of the most, uh, the strongest men in the world. In fact, the universe, even, because he won Mr. Universe five times. Uh, and he went on from there, from being the strongest man in the world, to becoming a worldwide f- famous movie star. You've seen him in Predator, Terminator, Twins, not his best work, but he's been in lots of different things. And then if that wasn't enough, he became the governor of California. And so, you know, he rags to riches, weakness to strength, all by this self-determination and will. He wanted to become this particular person, and he was able to in America. But I came across this article um, last year when he gave a commencement address at a university in Houston. And so a commencement address is, or actually it was a graduation ceremony. So at the end, all the students have finished their degree and then they're receiving their diplomas and they've asked Arnie, the Terminator, to come in and give a speech. And so he gets up and starts doing his speech and then he says this. He repaints their story a little bit differently to maybe how they were expecting. Now, on the diplomas, he says... There will be only one name, and this is yours. But I hope it doesn't confuse you, and you think that maybe you made it that far by yourself. No, you didn't, he says. It took a lot of help. None of us can make it alone. None of us, not even the guy that is talking to you right now, (laughs) 
That was the greatest bodybuilder of all times. Not even me, he says. That has been the Terminator and went back in time to save the human race. Not even me that fought and killed predators with his bare hands. I always tell people, you can call me anything you want. You can call me Arnold. You can call me Schwarzenegger. You can call me the Austrian Oak. By the way, you can call me the Australian Oak if you want. <laughs> you can call me Schwartzy. You can call me Arnie. But don't ever call me the self-made man. Isn't that a startling line from someone who, to every outside appearance, looks like a self-made man? Why is he so adamant about this? The pin-up boy of the American dream. He goes on to say this. It's so important for you to understand, I didn't make it that far on my own. I mean, to accept that credit or that medal would discount every single person that has helped me get here today. That gave me advice, that made an effort, that lifted me up when I fell. And it gives the wrong impression that we can do it all alone. None of us can. The whole concept of the self-made man or woman is a myth. It's very interesting that Arnold would have such insight into his own life, um, into his own living out of his career. And he sees it rightly. That's the truth. None of us is a self-made man or woman. And in this passage we're going to see today, the Apostle Paul is getting at the same kind of concept. That in our salvation, in the portrait of our story before God, no one is a self-made man or woman. No one has, can paint the story that they made it there all on their own. And Paul is taking at pains to let his Ephesian readers know, and by implication us, that none of us has that story either. In fact, what Paul is going to do today is not have us tell our testimony. He's going to tell our testimony to us. He's going to share our story so that we can see it rightly. Because we're all affected by Western individualism. We're all affected by this part of our life which wants to take credit somewhere for our salvation, take credit somewhere for what we've done in our life. And what Paul's going to do here is obliterate that and change our whole perspective. Now, this may be new news to you or it might be old news. But what, however the message comes to you today, the point is to help you to love God afresh to see your story rightly so that you can worship him more fully. And the big point that he wants to get through in the passage is this, to see that every Christian story is a portrait of grace from beginning to end. That's the picture that Paul is painting to the Ephesians. Every one of our stories is a portrait of grace from beginning to end. So to kind of unpack this idea, three points today. Who we once were, what God has done, and who we now are. This is our story. This is your story. Let's read again verses 1 through 3 in point number 1. Who we once were. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
kind. It's an unflattering picture of humanity. It's not an inspiring way to start your Sunday morning. When Paul looks out and God looks out to humanity, he doesn't see a whole bunch of people that are kind of half decent. You know, no one's perfect, but we kind of a bit of a makeup on. We can kind of present ourselves well to God. The picture that Paul's painting here is that when God looks out on humanity, he sees a graveyard. He sees a spiritual graveyard. Or he sees zombies in a sense, dead people walking. You see, all of us live lives doing some good, some bad, some righteous, some evil. But ultimately, what the picture of this passage is that without the grace of God, we're all born dead spiritually. We're born far away from God. We're not born pleasing in his sight. We're born in a graveyard of our souls. And so he kind of describes it like this. He says that we were dead in the trespasses and sins in, when, in which you once walked. You see, the, it's not like we're passive in our sin. He's saying you were once walking in sin. This is the story of every Christian. You were dead in sin and you weren't passive in it. You were active. You were actively walking against God. And if you're not yet a believer here this morning, that's your story. Whether you know it or not, Paul is kind of reaching in and saying, I'm sorry to let you know, but actually, you're dead in sin, and you're walking in it. And he explains what it looks like to walk in sin in three different ways. You see, first, that we were following the course of this world. Secondly, following the prince of the power of the air. And thirdly, living in the passions of our flesh. Or to kind of summarize it quickly, we were following the world, the devil, and our flesh. To follow the world is to be more like the pattern and systems of this ungodly world than to be like our God, our creator, the one who's revealed himself in the scriptures. I experienced this for myself when I went to pastor's college in the US. I thought I was pretty godly, to be honest. <laughs> I thought I had a pretty good biblical worldview. And then I started to be immersed and saturated in the scriptures. And I started to realize how secular I'd been, how much the course and pattern of the world had transformed my thinking about roles, about authority, about gender, about pride, about grace, about works. And I realized, man, I'm far more affected by the world than I once realized. And that's what we're all born into. Secondly, we are born following the prince of the power of the air. That's Paul's way of saying the devil and his workers, demons. His unflattering picture of humanity is that we're actually born influenced and affected by Satan through his lies, through his works, subtly, I think, in the West. We don't notice it so much, but the reason why so much evil happens in our lives and our hearts is attributed to the world and to the devil. It's not all the devil. You can't blame all your sin on Satan. You have a part in it, as we're going to see in the third point, but that's part of who we are. Satan bids us and tempts us to either reject God or just simply ignore him and relegate him out of our lives. And thirdly, they lived in the passions of their flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We're born knowing how to sin. We're born knowing how to give in rather than resist. We're born knowing how to lie, how to cheat, how to steal. You just have to look at kids. No, you don't have to teach them, you know, to hit or to take or anything like that. They just know how to do it. Why? 
Well, they're born with the sin nature of Adam. Adam and Eve who took the garden, uh, the fruit in the garden and disobeyed God. Every single person born after them is born enslaved to their flesh. The desires and cravings we have. And before we were in Christ, we were ruled by these things. The world, Satan, and the flesh. And we do what we want, and we don't even care. That's the picture Paul is painting of who we once wore. That's the broad brushstroke he wants to see us. He pulls out the black straight away. <laughs> it's not our normal way of looking at things. And what's the result? If, if, if someone lives like this, what's the result? It's a harrowing, harrowing reality. Read the next little section, verse 3. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Every person born outside of Christ, living outside of Christ, is a child of wrath by nature. It's a harrowing reality. What Paul is saying here is this, is that the destiny of all those who do not bow the knee to Jesus, but bow the knee to the world, the flesh, and the devil, is the wrath of God. God's active hatred of sin will come against every single person who hasn't repented and believed. That was all of our stories before we came to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Every single one of us was dead spiritually and awaiting the wrath of God, the judgment of God on our life. As I considered these verses, <clears throat> as I was flying from Orlando into Dallas, I was weeping, to be honest. I was glad I was sitting next to Patrick because I was weeping on the plane. I was terrible. Tears were streaming down my face. My, my, my whole body was sort of heaving with pain to think of the reality that awaits those who are outside of Christ. Potentially the reality of some who are in this room. Those who are with me on the plane. My friends and family. My grandparents. People that don't know the Lord. I was thinking of their certain reality. Children of wrath by very nature inescapably, on a pathway to judgment. Although we are alive physically, spiritually we are dead, unable to know God, love God, or please God in our natural state. When God looks out on the world, he sees a graveyard, not roses, he doesn't see a whole bunch of things. He can, oh, I can, I can make this work. I can work with their nature. No, no, no. He's got some resurrecting to do. It shapes this kind of picture of who we are. We'll, we need to believe what the Scriptures tell us about ourselves because you won't naturally arrive there. By nature, you'll think, look, I know I'm not that good, but there's some good in me. In fact, I remember doing good things. I remember choosing God. I remember when I became a Christian, I knew I needed God. I wasn't dead spiritually. I was alive because I was searching and seeking. I had a cross-shaped hole in my heart that bridged at youth camp. You know, that's our normal picture. But what Paul is doing here is turning it upside down. Rather than us being out in the back of the ocean, drowning, and suddenly realizing, okay, I'm not going to be able to swim out of here, we raise our hands and go, help me. That's not the story. 
The picture Paul is painting is that actually we are well long gone outside the flags in a riptide and we're now at the bottom of the ocean with no help, with no opportunity of salvation. And that's our friends and family. That's any of us in this room who haven't yet hoped in Christ. It's an inescapable reality. You're already at the bottom of the ocean. It's a heavy way to begin this morning, but I believe we need to hear this message because it's not our natural story and we need a supernatural word to reveal it to us, to awaken us, to remind us this is who we once were or who we may be right this very moment. Is this how you picture yourself? Or is this how you picture yourself before you came to Christ? Do you really believe that you were dead in sin, hopeless, helpless, without any chance of making it to God? Is that really what you think of yourself? Because your answer to that question will totally determine how grateful you are to God for his salvation in Christ Jesus. Once you come to see that your portrait is one of a graveyard before Christ, then you will start to begin to see the wonder of the next point. So, Paul is leaving no room for the self-made Christian man or woman, and that's where he's going to get to in the next point, what God has done. So who we once were, now what God has done. Let's read verse 4 through 7. Incredible words here. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Paul now paints the next frame of your portrait, of all of our portraits. He brings in the hero character, the resolution to the complication of those who are dead in sin. And the hero is not us, it's someone else. And if you were getting hung up there about God being so wrathful and so angry in sin, Paul then you know, shows this beautiful flowery language that yes, God is a God of wrath who justly hates sin and will punish it. But you see in verse 4, he is rich in mercy too. He has a great love with which he's loved us. And we can see later, it's the immeasurable riches of grace. Paul extends his vocabulary to show he's a God of justice and a God of mercy. That's who he really is. And so Paul interrupts this story of the graveyard and says, but God, we have no hope. We have no opportunity for getting out of this situation, but God. Incredible words. The contrast is stark. But God, that is the story of all of our lives. We were once on our destiny to hell. But God, in every one of our lives. But God, 
painted in big black letters over your story. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved you, even when you were dead in your trespasses, what did he do? Three things. He made us alive together with Christ. And he raised us up with him. And he has seated us with him in the heavenly places. He makes us alive. He goes back to the graveyard and raises your soul spiritually from death. He raises us then out of the grave and gives us resurrection, new life, new creaturehood. We are now a new nature. By nature, children of wrath, now nature, children of grace. It's a total reversal. And then he seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Couldn't get loftier in Paul's explanation of our salvation. Once we were following the prince of the power of the air. Each one of us, this is not just the Ephesians, this is you and me in this room. We were followers of Satan. Now we are seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus and effectively rule over Satan. This is Paul's most realized eschatology, if you know what that means. He re- it's so sure what God has done for us in Christ Jesus that he says it's already happened. It's so sure that you and I will reign with Christ upon death that he's saying it's already happening right now. Once following Satan, now ruling over the Spirit because we are so unified with Christ Jesus. You see, God sent his only son into the world to die the death that we should have died so he could raise him from the dead and give us new life and then ascended Christ into heaven where Christ now sits at the right hand of God ruling and reigning over this universe and we are in him. Quite the turnaround (laughs) from being dead in sin. Now this is our true reality and story. So why does God do this? What does God get out of killing himself for us? Why does God go to such lengths? Well, verse 7. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God is using your turned around life to show himself off, to say, look what I can do. Look what I can do, Satan. Look what I can do, demons. Look what I can do, principalities and powers. I can turn dead souls and make them alive. I can turn children of wrath into children of grace. He wants to show off his mercy and grace to the universe through the gathering of his saints in churches. That's what he's doing. That's the whole purpose of God's plan in the world. And we get to be a part of it. Each single one of us, not just the person next to you, but you personally are part of God's plan to display his glory. He will pull each one of us out and say, grace on you, grace on you. Look what I did, grace on you. Look what I did, another bit of grace. He's showing off. And he shows off with you. And so sure is our salvation that Paul declares it done. We are made alive. We are raised and we are seated For those of us who are painfully aware of our sin and our fallenness. For those this week who are aware that you have fallen short, that you are inadequate, that you've sinned in that way again. 
that you have lackluster affection, lackluster devotion, lackluster discipline, your true portrait is this. You are seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus because of his grace. Sure reality. You can be totally confident in your place of salvation because it is God that does all the work. Notice who's the subject of all those verbs. But God made us alive. He raised us up with Christ. He seated us in the heavenly realms. What were we doing? We were dead in our sin. We're at the bottom of the ocean. He dives in. He grabs us. He pulls us ashore and breathes life into us. We open our eyes and we go, thank you. I love you. That's all we contribute to the whole process is a reaction of love and grace and faith in the response of being brought from death to life. He makes us alive. And now how can we do anything but joyfully and gladly follow him? Trust in Him. Live for Him with everything we have. So how are we meant to view ourselves? How are we meant to paint our portrait as you sit here in your little plastic chair in Parramatta today in 2019? Well, point three, who we are now. Commentator William Klein says about verse 8, a well-known verse. If you've been in the church a long time, you know this verse very well, but he says this, we dare not allow the familiarity of this next sentence to diminish its impact. So as we've read this many times before, let us read again verse 8 through 9. Who are we now? What's our new nature? How do we get saved? Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast the reality of salvation in Christ is that it is totally and completely by grace Paul says it's a gift we don't add anything to it. We can't do anything because we're at the bottom of the ocean. We're buried six feet under spiritually. We can't add to it. There's, we can't say, oh, well, you know, like I kind, of, I kind of sensed I needed God and so I chose God. It's not how it works. The picture is that we're senseless. But because of his great love, he comes after us. It's by grace we've been saved. So who we are now is we are children of grace. Our story is completely shaped by grace from beginning to end. Just like Arnie realized that his story was he wasn't a self-made man. Well, each one of us, none of us are self-made Christian men or women. Not in our salvation and not in the continuing of our salvation either as we walk out our faith in fear and trembling. And the whole point is so that we will not boast in ourselves how tempted we are to think we contribute, how tempted we are to want to steal some glory, to tag ourselves into God's photo of his salvation of us and be like, just saved another person with Riley Spring. You know, he did a great work. 
Or, and we like to tag ourselves into the picture of other people's salvation. Well, you know, like they were searching and I told them the gospel. You know, it was me. I had a part to play. Yes, we do have parts to play. But ultimately, all the glory goes to God alone. You can tell how much you think you were saved by grace alone by how much you boast in Christ alone. How much are you boasting in Christ? What do you boast about? What is the thing that you are so excited about that you want to praise and post and you know, like and share on Facebook and Instagram and in your life, about your life? Is it the grace of God through Christ Jesus for you? I want that to be for me. I want that to be my boast. I want to be like, guess what? Guess what? You'll never believe this. I was dead in sin, <laughs> but now I've been raised to new life. Can you imagine? Me, me, I'm seated with Christ. Did I do anything? No, it was all him. That should be what our testimonies sound like because we're so aware of who we once were, now who we are. It's a gift. So where does faith come into it? Do we contribute our belief? Don't we choose him? You know, I'm sure all of us can remember a, a time where we pursued God and experienced his grace. Well, at the human level, of course, we have to have faith. If you do not put your own personal faith in Christ, you are not saved. You can't have your parents' faith. You can't have your spouse's faith. You can't have your friend's faith. It has to be your faith. But the only way you can get to a position of putting your faith in Christ is if God's brought you out from the bottom of the ocean and breathed life into you. And then the only natural response in that moment is to believe in Christ and to rejoice in Christ and to trust in Christ. So we are saved by faith, but it's all by grace. It's a gift, Paul says. It would, to boast of your salvation, to think you paid a little part, it would be like you're walking down the street with a handbag or a man bag, whatever you fancy. And a lotto ticket falls from the sky from a skyscraper and lands in your handbag. And you look along and you see, you pull out the front of a TV and you're at the news agent, you see $100 million lotto ticket unclaimed and the numbers pop up and you go to get out your phone and instead you pull out a lotto ticket and you look at the numbers, you're like, oh my gosh, I just won $100 million. And they interview you and they say, well, how did it happen? You say, well, this ticket just fell out of the sky and landed in my purse. And, and they think, oh, isn't that amazing? And then they start to say, aren't you lucky? You're like, oh, well, I, I am lucky, but I did choose to have a handbag today. And if I didn't choose to have a handbag, maybe I wouldn't have got the lotto ticket. That's how silly it would be for us to start boasting in our salvation. Well, it doesn't work. Our deadness shows our need. And his work shows how he meets it. And it reveals the nature of who we are. Recipients of grace. In fact, trophies of grace. And that's where Paul ends in verse 10. So what does this mean for our Christian lives? Well, we're saved by grace. Does that mean we just do whatever we want now? We're in. We were dead spiritually. Now we're alive. We're on the beach. It's like, okay, see ya. Thanks, lifesaver. I'm doing whatever I want now. I'm actually, no, even better. I'm just going to go swimming again. <laughs> Where you told me not to go, I'm going to go and swim out there because I'm alive. Verse 10. This is who we are. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul is saying here that we are masterpieces of grace. That's what workmanship means there, a masterpiece. You and I are masterpieces of God's grace. The story of our lives is a portrait of grace, and the portrait that God paints is a masterpiece. You're not some dingy little prince that, you know, God bought at Kmart. (laughs) You're a great masterpiece that God is putting together, each one of us. But the masterpiece isn't meant to hang on the wall. It's a walking, living masterpiece that now reflects and becomes like the sculptor of the artwork. We are to walk not in the pattern and following this world, but to walk in grace and in the works that God prepared for us. All our work for God is to be done in view of grace. We're saved by grace, and now we work by grace. The power that saved us is the power that enables us to work for him. So as you go about your Christian life in business, at home, as a mother, as a father, as a single, as you do your gardening, as you do whatever you do, I don't know, as you get on a plane and travel 26 hours, whatever you're doing, every day is an opportunity to demonstrate the grace of God in your life and to work for him. We're not meant to hang on a wall as a pretty picture of grace. We're living examples. So the impossible application of the message of that you are saved by grace is this. You can't believe this. You can't believe this. That you need to do works in order to be saved. You can't. You're dead at the bottom of the ocean. But the other impossible application of this text is that you need to do nothing because you're saved by grace. The necessary application of this text is to do good because you have been saved. God has so many amazing things prepared in advance for you to do. He's aligned them all up for you to honor him and glorify him and boast him, uh, boast in him. And so we now, because we have grace, can get to work. We're not dead at the bottom of the ocean. We're alive. And there's so much that God has for us to do. So is there any area in your life where you are neglecting? An area that you feel God's calling you to serve, but you think it's too hard, it's too costly, it's too consuming, it's too sacrificial. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be like this. Well, it's not if he's called you to do it. He will give you the grace to do all the works he's prepared for you to do. He gives you the grace to wake up and serve on a Sunday with a happy attitude. He gives you the grace to love and serve your colleagues. He gives you grace to be kind when people mistreat you. He gives you grace to pray for your enemies. He gives you grace to share the gospel. He gives you grace to make disciples and to do it day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out, decade in, decade out, until you reach home and we get to heaven tired but enthused because the whole way we were empowered by grace. So Paul wants to paint a picture for all of us, for myself, for all of us. We were, who we once were, dead in sin. What God has done made us alive, truly alive. Each one of us, if you trust in Christ, you are alive in him, spiritually alive, a trophy of his grace so that you can live for him and demonstrate your love for him in all that you do. 
an indication of how much you understand and believe this passage in Ephesians 2 is how amazed you are by grace. If you truly believe that this is your story, then your heart, at times, not always, we're sinful, there's weakness in our flesh, we don't always have brimming joy, but there ought to be an increasing and growing affection and wonder for the Saviour who plucked you out of eternal misery and has showered you with eternal bliss. So what do you do if you are not stunned and amazed and in awe of grace? Well, spend the week reading this chapter. Put yourself back in verses 1 through 3 and remind yourself again that's who you once were so that now you can make your boast only in Christ. Alternatively, what you can do is imagine if you didn't do it. It's so easy to take our salvation for granted. We get so used to it. Imagine if he never saved you. Imagine if he never called your name. Imagine if he left you there. And then overflow in grateful, thankful prayer. This is one of those passages which raises questions for people. How does this all work? How does God's sovereignty and free will, how does you know, it work when some people are saved and some people aren't? I can't answer every question. But take all your questions to God. Take your wrestle to God. Bring it with other people and discuss this passage. Figure out how this works so that you can come to know and love him more and more. Paul paints a picture so that we can see the portrait of every Christian's life is a masterpiece of grace. There's no self-made man or woman in this room. Our only boast is in the cross of Christ. Brothers and sisters, the blacker the sky, the brighter the stars shine. This passage paints the blackness deeply and darkly so that we can see the beauty of the diamond of God's grace to us in Christ. John Newton captured it well in his hymn. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Would you pray with me? Well, God of all grace, I plead with you and ask that you would affect my soul and my friends' souls, that they would know and truly understand and be affected by the reality that we were destined for hell, yet you came and you made us alive and you raised us up and you seated us with Christ in the heavenly places because you loved us. Mercifully, you dealt with us. Not according to what we deserve, but according to your grace. And so, Lord, as we run the rest of our days, would we be empowered by this portrait, knowing our true reality, that we're saved by grace to do good works, empowered by that same 
gracious God. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this mystery of your salvation in Christ. Lead us to serve you this coming week. In Jesus' name, amen.